0: Assalamu alaikum. this is Abdurrahman Murphy, and you're listening to the newest heartwork series, Finding Meaning in Trial. In this series, we'll be exploring an upcoming publication that I'm working on, translating and commenting on the beautiful short text of Al-Izbin Abdus Salam called The Benefits of Trials. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the meanings and some of the benefits of trials in our lives as given to us by Al-Izbin Abdus Salam. He gives us some of the good things that we seek in life that can only come from the bad moments that we experience in life. I look forward to joining you on this series, inshallah, and having you with us. And as always, if you benefit from our work, please consider donating and becoming a sustainer at rootsdfw.org sustain. as alaikum. bismillah, 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 walhamdulillah, wa salatu, ala rasulullah, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ijma'in. Welcome home, everybody. It's good to see you, alhamdulillah. Welcome back to our reading of <clears throat> the, ber- the, 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 the benefits of trial and the virtues of trial and tribulation by Al-'Iz bin Abdul Salam. Um, we've been reading Alhamdulillah now for a few weeks, and I'm hoping that everybody um, is as you know excited as I am. As I read uh, this text, I am always looking forward to seeing what new layers. Of perspective I can be given by the author on how to respond because that's really the goal of this text. This book is to provide everybody with options and choices. Now here's the thing and I'll I'll warn everybody of something that when you read books like this sometimes that develop a person's spirituality, there can be the challenge of what feels like a lofty expectation that's almost impossible. So you read about, for example, in this book there's going to be examples of this, where he'll say that there are certain people that when they're tested, they became happy. They smiled. They laughed. Upon receiving a trial in their life, they actually became, what? Happy. So you read that and you're like, there's no way that that's true. And we quoted the story a while ago about The old woman who tripped and fell and she started laughing and then they asked her, are you okay? Did you hit your head? Like, why are you laughing? And she said, I became upset when I felt the pain of the fall, but then I remembered the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said that the believer does not experience any discomfort or any pain, whether it is physical or even mental. He said, anxiety, ham except that Allah removes their sins because of it. So she said, when I remembered this hadith and I thought about the pain that I was feeling in my leg, I started to laugh because I was happy and I was excited that Allah was cleansing me from all of the sins that I had committed. So when we read books like this, we have to understand that they are describing to us what we all can accomplish. And al Iz bin Abdul Salam is giving us a list of perspectives and options. That when you're tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your response does not have to be what this world expects of you. You don't have to get angry because that's what the dunya would dictate you do. You don't have to become disappointed or angry or upset or resentful. No, you have spiritually the choice to respond in a different way. And your response will ultimately change how you handle that test. The test can be the same for many people, but the response will dictate the person's trajectory. I wanted to share with you one line before we begin tonight. We're going to talk about a couple different benefits of these trials. But I wanted to share with you from Ibn Ata'illah one of the things that he says about how to become a person that doesn't just respond in a way that is like visceral, but you actually have this different level of processing, right? For example, when you give charity, when you give your money away, what does the Muslim feel about charity? How does a Muslim feel about giving charity? What do we feel about it? Is it good or bad? All right, we don't have a jamaat on this. Is it good or bad? Yeah. It's good, okay, all right, we had a little, bit of a, a little bit of a scare. Charity is good, okay? From what you know, maybe you've been to a fundraiser or you've seen it online or something, have you guys ever heard about charity taking or, or taking away your wealth or not taking away your wealth? Have you guys ever heard the Prophet ﷺ say, "Man min al-mana Have you guys ever heard this before? That charity will never decrease your wealth. So Muslims believe that when we give charity, when we give our money away, hard-earned cash, we actually believe that we're not actually giving the money away, but we're actually what? Somehow, some way. We are handing it off and investing it, and Allah is replacing whatever money we gave away with more, in some shape or form. Now, it may not come in the form of a briefcase, right, on your doorstep. It may not come in the form of a raise or a promotion, but it might come in many different ways. So Islam redefines how we understand these very human experiences. Giving money away as a human being is painful. No one wants to give their money away. No one wants to give charity. If you thought about it from a irreligious, almost atheistic perspective, charity is actually pointless because there's no reward for giving your money away, right? There's a goodwill of virtue that lives inside of each person in which they recognize that there is something inherently beautiful and positive about giving charity. And as Muslims, we believe this. And we only believe this because we see Allah in that moment. When you give charity, you're not seeing the dollars. You're not seeing the person. What are you seeing? You're seeing the pleasure of Allah, and you're yearning for that, and you're hoping for that. So Ibn Allah he says, Anta ma'al akwan ma lam tashhad al You will always be in the realm of the dunya, the creation, until you think about the Creator. Your thoughts, your statements, your actions will always be influenced. Al-akwan. Hatta until you think about the creator. But then he says, the moment you think about the creator, your entire perspective shifts. And he says, Fa'ida Shahittahu, when you witness Allah, meaning when your heart realizes that this is not just a human moment, but I'm actually doing something for the sake of Allah, he says. كَانَتِ الْأَكْوَانُ The creation all belongs to you in that moment. He says that what? When you forget Allah, the creation has power over you. But when you remember Allah, you have complete control over creation. And you are like, this does not control me. This dollar, this, this whatever, it does not control, it doesn't dictate. It does not decide for me. Because I know that Allah has put this in my life. And so, as we're reading this book about trials... I want you guys to think about this and deeply understand this. Your trials in your life do not control you. They do not dictate for you your decisions. You and I, when we are tested by Allah, we have choices. And those choices begin here, in the heart. How do we view this moment? How do we see it? And from there, the way that I perceive this fitna, this trial in my life, will change my entire trajectory from that moment. If I see it as something that Allah has given me, for some benefit, even if I don't know what it is, in most cases, you won't know why. You won't understand why. And I I tried to explain this to one of the students here. When a trial happens, when a difficulty happens to you in your life, immediately you start to search for answers. Why is this happening? Why now? Why me? Why, 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 right? But you're actually asking all these really good questions about the trial, but the trial is so close to you that you can't actually even make out what what it is. But as time passes, the trial moves further and further away, and you're able to zoom out and see the shape of it, and the breadth of it, and the impact of it. And as it moves further and further away, you're able to see. Instead of being blinded by it so close, See, when you're in this moment, this is when Allah demands trust. You can't see, but you have to trust. But then when you start to reflect as it goes further and further away and you live your life and now you're months and years past that trial and you're able to discern what that was, then you're able to take and extract, oh, this happened for that reason. Oh, now I know why Allah did that. Now I know, despite the prayers and the tears and the du'as and the... The, the aspirations and the resume workshop and this and this and this, now I know why that didn't happen. I was confused when it was close, but now that I'm far away from it, now that time has given me the distance that I needed, I'm able to see exactly why this did not go the way that I was hoping. Right? And Allah Ta'ala says that. In the Quran, He says what? It is sometimes the case that you love something, but it is bad for you. And it is sometimes the case that you hate something, but it's good for you. And then he says what? And Allah knows and you don't know. That realization makes you the master of your own experience. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us this. Okay. Okay. Let's move on a little bit, inshallah. So, we were talking about Hilm. Hilm is the ability to withstand and to be forbearant. The ability to be able to control oneself especially in a time of anger, especially in a time of chaos, when things seem to be falling away, falling apart, crumbling before your very eyes. The one who has Helm is the one who can hold it together and keep it all together. And this is a trait, again, that is universally loved. You know, when you see somebody that is in the middle of a very difficult moment and somehow, some way, they're able to keep it together, you have this natural admiration for them. It doesn't matter who they are, what religion, or even if you don't know them. But if you see them able to handle it, you have this just absolute inclination of respect towards that individual. And the Prophet Salam, he says this. He says that hilm is one of the most beloved traits to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This ability to keep oneself together. Now, what's interesting is that we just talked about dua. Right? Dua was the previous section. So what? The gift of trial is that you, you are given dua. Many of us wouldn't make dua if we weren't tested. Right? Now, hilm is also one of the requirements for your du'a to be accepted. Because the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith, that if a person makes du'a but they don't have hilm, then their du'a is rejected because they what? They put pressure on Allah, almost as if it's some kind of transaction. So he says, ﷺ, that every one of you will have their du'a answered, except... The one who says, That I prayed, I made dua and Allah did not answer me. What is that statement reflective of? Impatience, a lack of forbearance, a lack of ability to handle yourself when the situation is not necessarily going the exact way that you want. Shaytan uses a person's lack of hilm to mess with them. You know, when you're in a moment of chaos and difficulty, oftentimes, we have a fork in the road ahead of us. We know how to respond. We know how we should respond. But then there are times when we also see the opposite. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. But when you're in a moment, when you see things going wrong, you have this almost like out-of-body experience where you're like, okay, if I respond like this, it'll go fine. If I respond like this, it'll all be destroyed. And then you choose the wrong way, right? So, if I yell, like this happens as a parent all the time. I don't know if you guys are being transported back to your like your teenage years when your parents snapped at you and you're like, I can talk back, and then I will. My parents will commit a crime against me, right? Or I can be, I can hold on to it, be patient, and I can walk away from this unscathed, okay? And you almost have that like meta moment to make that decision. Now, Wahib ibn Munabbih he said that. He was describing, and he was somebody who was well read in the different uh, uh, scriptures. And he used to take from the different scriptures some of the descriptions of shaitan. And he said that shaitan said in one of the previous nations to a previous prophet, shaitan told one of those prophets that my favorite place to be when I'm attacking one of the worshipers of Allah, my favorite place by all means, is when people are impatient and angry. That is, Shaitan's saying, that is my favorite place. When people are, what? Impatient and angry. What's Hilm again? Patience and the ability to hold it together. He says, when a person becomes impatient and angry, he says, we play with that person. The Shayateen play with them like a child plays with a ball. It's a game, it's amusement. And think about it, when you're impatient, when you're angry, when you're in the midst of this emotional storm, what starts to happen? Your mind starts to run. You start to have negative thoughts about people, about situations, about yourself. Then the mind goes to the tongue, and the tongue starts to talk. Don't tell anyone I told you this, but, right? Keep this between you and me. The thumb starts to get, you know, the, the width of your thumb and your finger for the what? Who knows, don't act so innocent. The screenshots. You're angry and impatient. Start taking screenshots. You guys ever sent the screenshot to the person you were screenshotting? That's always fun, right? Okay. Screenshots start flying left and right. All of these things start happening. What is happening? Again, as a person who's indulging in anger, you think you're in control, but you're being played with by Shaitan. Shaitan is kicking you around. You guys ever seen people kick a soccer ball? Just kicking you around like a, like a soccer ball. And why? Because he knows that at the end of this game, there's nothing but bad. You and I, when we're in the middle of it, we're, we're in the middle of being angry, we, we almost speak like, yeah, I, I know. I'll stop. You know, I'm not going to cross too many lines. You At that point, you don't have control. The one who has control of you at that point, because what? He's infiltrated your chest. He's surrounded your heart with all these horrible thoughts and ideas. The paranoia, the doubt, the anxiety, the anger, the frustration. It's just feeding into itself like a black hole of fire, subhanAllah. And then what happens? The statements, the actions lead to regret, and that leads to damage. And some of those moments are not salvageable. Some of those moments are not salvageable. The amount of people, the amount of people, you know, and my good friend Sheikh Noman is here from Chicago. He's also an imam and a resident scholar. The amount of people that Sheikh Noman, and as a community worker myself and others, have had to sit in an office with them having tears in their eyes, saying what? My kids won't talk to me anymore. My parents won't talk to me anymore. My spouse and I are getting divorced. And I regret it because it was because I couldn't control this. I one time had this giant Punjabi man, giant, weeping on me because he says I couldn't control my tongue and now my wife will not come back to me. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? The solution for this problem is not some mystical, unreachable solution, it's Hilm. It's being a person that is Halim, it's controlling yourself in that moment. So how do we obtain Hilm? We talked about it last time, we'll go over it quickly. Number one, you have to practice sabr. We're going to talk more about sabr later. But the good way to think about sabr in English is you have to be able to weather the storm. You have to be able to do it. If you can't weather a storm, meaning if it's raining outside and you cannot walk to your car, now think about your life in that metaphor. Are things going the way you want? No, you would have rather it not be raining. I get it. We all would have rather it not be raining. But can you muster up the strength and courage to keep going? You have to remind yourself sometimes. How am I going to let this thing derail me? How am I going to let what this person said or did or didn't do or didn't say? How am I going to let that derail me? I'm not going to let that take all of my, my focus today, having sabr. And then he says, having anah, which is deliberation. You need to be thoughtful. You have to think about what is this going to do to me? And then you have to reflect, if I act in this way, am I going to be happy or not? If I say this thing, will I be happy or not? One of the things that they talk about is like, write out the email and then close the laptop. Don't send it. Leave it in your drafts. The next morning, go back and read it. If you don't feel embarrassed... If you don't feel shocked, then send it. But if you wake up and you're like, oh, that was too harsh. Anyone do this before? You guys ever write out a message and then read through it and then edit it like crazy? It doesn't help that you can edit your iMessages because they can click back and see what you wrote. All right? They can see that. So all of these things, subhanAllah, it's all about taking account of yourself before the account is being taken of you. Ana, he says. And then number, the last one he says is at-tafbut which is being firm, being strong. And then the famous line we ended with last time, if Hilm were to have parents, it would be intelligence and it would be silence. Being smart and being quiet. And part of being quiet is that you're smart. Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Man samata naja. whoever is quiet is fine. They'll be okay. They'll be just fine. And we say this a lot here at HeartWork, but I'll say it again because it bears worth repeating you will almost never regret being quiet. Once, maybe a year, once in a decade, you might say to yourself, I should have said something, but you will almost always, your regrets will almost always be attached to the things that you said when you know that you shouldn't have said them. May Allah Ta'ala protect us from our tongues. You know, SubhanAllah, one of the hadith that absolutely shakes me, You know, there's the physical world where we see each other, everything about us, and then there's the unseen world. And the Day of Judgment is a place where those worlds come together. The seen world and the unseen world become the same. You see everything. You get to experience everything. So many of us maybe don't think about this, but this is a very important tool that the Prophet ﷺ, he told us that every person's body, in some way, shape, or form, will testify for the actions and the statements that the person did or against them and on that day it's interesting because the body is being described as testifying but then the person is being described as telling the body be quiet you're going to get us all in trouble right so the tongue is saying oh allah i did this or the eyes are saying oh allah i looked at this and the body is saying don't stop stop testifying you're going to get us all punished But on that day, the organs and the pieces of the body don't have control. They're being commanded to testify and they have to testify. So the Prophet ﷺ, he says that every day, this isn't even the day of judgment, this is every day. He said in the hadith that every single day when we wake up, the entire body in the unseen world, in the ghaib, the entire body has this spiritual communication that it directs at the tongue, every single part of your body is directing a message to the tongue. What is the message saying? The message says, be upright, be good, because if you are good, we will be saved. But if you are bad, if you violate what Allah has said, we're all doomed. Meaning the fingers, the eyes, the hands, the ears, the face, everything is sending a message to this one organ. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, the companion of the Prophet, he used to walk around like this. And sometimes they would see him, they're like, what happened? You burned your tongue? And he would say, no, I'm holding this because this thing, he's holding it, this thing, right, is going to take me to hellfire. Just this, Abu Bakr is saying this. He's the best friend of the Prophet Wasallam. No offense, but who's your best friend? I don't want you guys to be angry at each other, right? But if this guy is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's best friend, is the Khalifa after he passes, and he's walking around Medina like this, then maybe we need to be a little bit more concerned. May Allah Ta'ala forgive us for our shortcomings, okay? Now that's one of the ways that Hilm develops, is because you give yourself a chance to process before you say things. When you say things, you commit to them. When you say things, you don't want to walk it back. The ego doesn't want to say sorry. The ego doesn't want to walk it back. You know, this is just like my daughter. (laughs) She's, you know, almost five years old, mashallah. Man, getting her to apologize. Are you five? Yeah, he's clapping for the five-year-olds. Okay. (laughs) Getting a child to apologize is one of the most hilarious experiences. You can walk them through the whole process. Did you hit him? Yes. Should you hit him? No. Why did you hit him? Because I was angry. Okay. You should go to him and say sorry. No. (laughs) Do you want him to say sorry to you when he hits you? Yes. Okay. Should you say sorry? No. The commitment, the, the, the ego has so much trouble walking it back. So subhanAllah, the advice of the Prophet is don't commit with your tongue. Don't let your ego get comfortable so you don't have to walk things back. But then after that, once you've remained silent... My dad used to say you can't talk and think at the same time. Once you've remained silent, then you open up your heart and mind the ability to think. And let's... I want to give you some statements of what some scholars have said about the trials and how a person can develop hilm. Number one, when something that you want is taken from you or something that you don't want is placed in your life, a trial, a test, right? Oftentimes we have trouble processing it because it's not going the way that we planned. I want to go here, and now there's a roadblock. I have to change my course. I have to change my direction. And this becomes frustrating to me. But all I can see in that moment is the obstruction. I don't see anything else about that object or that thing. I can't process it, especially when I'm talking, I can't. So now that I've closed my mouth, I can think and I can use my faculties in my heart to observe and say okay why did this happen and Ibn Allah he says deprivation when Allah takes something from you he says your limuka al fihi because you are bereft of understanding how Allah has placed that in your life and how Allah is present in that You don't understand how Allah is present in that for you. The job that you didn't get, that you worked so hard to get, instead of seeing it as I didn't get it, try saying this, Allah saved me from it. Instead of the proposal that you really wanted, and I've heard some really heartbreaking proposals, subhanAllah. I've heard, oh, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully not you, Abbas. I've heard some proposals where the person said, I was there, everything seemed fine, and then suddenly, subhanAllah, it just ended. And that's heartbreaking. Imagine the amount of like self-doubt and the crushing to, to a person's uh, uh, self-esteem. What did I do wrong? I thought I did everything right. And, and, and they make all these you know, accountability. They start to look at them. They read text messages over and over again. They go through their memory, listen to all the phone calls that they can recall in their mind. And they think it was going so well. Well, instead of seeing that as a moment where Allah Ta'ala took that from you, maybe say it as Alhamdulillah Allah protected me from something. And that statement can only happen when there's trust injected into that. Allah protected me from something. And I know we're using big examples, but we can even use this in the small things in life. It was a story. I know here they had a souk the other day, like a, a, a secondhand, like, shopping. Is that, like, a really mean way to say that, secondhand shopping? Okay, so they had, like, a upsale resale kind of thing. I don't know, upscale resale. How do I say it? Thrift. There we go. Yeah, there we go. All right. I am old. Okay, so a bunch of people went shopping for other people's clothes in this other hall, okay? <laughs> and we we'll lie, this happened just, like, 36 hours ago. It just happened. And somebody that I know, okay, took some of the clothes that they liked. And they were like, you know what? I don't have cash right now. Let me fold these up. I'm going to put them, kind of hide them somewhere. It's a big building, right? So I'm going to hide them somewhere. I'll come back and go with some cash or I'll get my card or whatever. Come back, I'm going to buy it. They go, they come back. And what happened to the clothes? They're gone. So they go and they're like, I really liked it. They were telling me like, I really liked it. I really liked it. I said, okay. They said, and then I went to the purse. I thought in my head, okay, maybe they just put them somewhere. But surely no one bought them. Because you know when you like something and you, you see it, you're like, you're already imagining yourself in it. You're already like, oh my God, I can't wait. I have this, this. I can match it perfectly. So they're already like, they're not committed to the idea that it's gone. <laughs> they're still living in that la-la land. So like, maybe I'll find it. They go and they ask the person. The person's like, yeah, I just sold it. This person's like, I was heartbroken. All right? And then a couple days later, like, you know, brought up like, wow, you know, I really wish I could have had those clothes. Really wish. How many of us have ever been in that state? I really wish that. I really wish that. And subhanAllah, I said, let me tell you something that my mom always tells me. And my dad, subhanAllah, told me the same thing. Don't become upset at something that didn't happen for you because it was never yours. Don't become upset as something that didn't happen for you because it was never yours you can become upset if something was yours but if it never happened for you how do you know it was yours to begin with the risk was not written on that thing with your name it was someone else's name and it doesn't matter if it was your size doesn't matter if it had your name on it doesn't matter if doesn't matter if you ordered it if it went to somebody else, it had nothing to do with you. And Allah's risk works in mysterious ways. So, Hilm, it becomes developed like a beautiful plant that blossoms from these moments intelligence, patience, silence, tawakkul, trust, perspective in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he says, When Allah gives you that opening, when Allah gives you that moment where you're like, you know what? I, I don't know exactly why he did this, but I trust him. Right? بَابَ فِي When Allah opens, what? The door of understanding in his deprivation. So instead of saying, why Allah? The person says, Allah got my back again. Then he says, Taking is the same as giving. You become just as happy when a lover moves as you do when he gives. You celebrate the job rejection. You celebrate it. You get an email, thank you for applying. We had a lot of applicants. You were not one that we wanted. Instead of being like, aw, you're like, alhamdulillah. Close your laptop, another day of going to a, a, a coffee shop, right? The rejection for the risha doesn't happen. Instead of, oh... You know, you're getting older. Instead of that thought, Alhamdulillah, Allah protected me from devastating me with something. Alhamdulillah. You walk away happy. It wasn't mine. You had your eyes on a house or a car or whatever. It, off the market, gone. Or three shirts that you thought you were going to get at a thrift shop. Alhamdulillah. Maybe if I wore those shirts, right, I would have stained them because I'm a sloppy eater, right? This is me talking about myself. And it would have been more devastating than never having them, right? right? To have loved and lost is better than never having loved at all. Not true, okay? So, that's Hilm. Now, the last bit about Hilm that helps you understand when Allah doesn't give you what you want and being a person of forbearance is removing human beings from the equation. And this is hard. Oftentimes, the subject of the pain that we experience is the action of somebody. Okay? Allah puts tests in our life, but the practitioner of the test <laughs> is another person. So, the scholars advise that if a person wants to develop this ability to withstand these tests, remove the person and just see you in Allah. So, he says, al <laughs> He says that, when people in your life give you something, it's actually deprivation. And this has many different explanations, but I want to focus on the second part. He says, "Well, And when Allah takes from you, it's actually Allah giving you or doing ihsan to you. So instead of becoming so fixated on this person being the source of your problems, realize that Allah Ta'ala is the one who placed them there and sent them there with good reason. Okay? Now, I want to share with you, before we move on to the next benefit, some of the benefits of Hilm itself. Number one, a person who is Halim, they are honorable, they're respected. If you can maintain forbearance, no one will lose an iota of respect for you, you will maintain your dignity. Number two, when a person has Hilm in a moment of, of tribulation, it keeps them free from trouble. Because when a person acts chaotic in a moment that's chaotic, they start to compound the chaos. If you want to be able to mitigate the damage, you cannot become damaging, right? If if things are already bad as they are, I have to protect myself from becoming part of the problem. If I become part of the problem, if I take a swing, right? If I step into the ring, Now, it's going to be worse. And subhanAllah, it'll be worse than the thing that already rattled me. How can I handle that if I couldn't handle this? Right? So, he says, number two, it keeps you free from trouble. Number three, when a person has Hilm, part of that is trusting Allah, it extinguishes the fire of worry. It's part of trusting in Allah's plan is what Hilm is. I know that Allah has something better for me and I know that, I don't know what that is but I trust Allah enough to know that He knows me. And in His knowing of me, I got no problem handing the situation over to Allah. And number four is that a person will naturally feel a sense of security and of, as a result of all of this, they will feel a sense of security with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with their Hilm, with their forbearance. And as I said, this is only possible through trials and tests. How many people want to be halim, want to be forbearant in trials? If you want to be forbearant, you cannot get upset when you are tested. That's how Allah is giving you this opportunity or this gift. Okay, now I'm going to start the next benefit. And this one is a little bit SubhanAllah. It's just full of stories, a little bit tough to go over because it actually requires a fundamental shift in the heart of a person. The seventh thing that is a gift when trials come to your life is you are given the opportunity to do something that everybody wants to do. Everybody in this room, I believe, in their heart of hearts wants to be known as a person who is forgiving, yes or no? Yes. When you meet someone who is forgiving, Do you respect them? Do you appreciate them? Do you see them and admire them? Wow, mashallah, I can't believe. Yeah, right Abbas? Two thumbs up, mashallah. Okay? When a person forgives in front of you, you have nothing but praise and respect for that person in your eyes, right? Well, what if I told you that the only way that you could become forgiving is when you're wronged? But it's interesting because we don't want to be wronged I don't want you to wrong me, but I want to be forgiving. But I only want to be forgiving to nobody. Because I don't want anyone to wrong me. You see how it doesn't make sense? SubhanAllah. The virtues that we aspire to achieve require that vice be done to us. It requires it. Otherwise, we'll never become the people that we want to become. You can't become patient, forbearant, trusting in Allah. You cannot become that person. Unless Allah puts tests in your path. That's why they're called tests, to see if we pass. So the next virtue that Allah gives you is the virtue of forgiving somebody. An Janiha. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, when He describes the virtue of forgiveness, He says that this person, when He describes them, He says, وَسَارِعُوا إِلَى مَغْفِرَةٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكُمْ Allah Ta'ala says, and race all of you, rush towards what? The forgiveness of your Lord and Jannah, which is as vast as all of the heavens and the earth combined, it is a place that is only prepared for those who have taqwa. All of us want to go to Jannah, yes? All of us want to go, yes? Just say yes. You might, this might be the one reason you get in. What if on the Day of Judgment, they're like, yeah, he asked that question and you didn't answer, so... Yeah, just say yes, it doesn't take that much, right? May Allah give us Jannah, say Ameen. Okay, khalas, don't be stingy with your words, man. I haven't even started the fundraising yet, right? Okay, so Allah in the Quran says, rush towards the forgiveness of Allah. So look at all the things he's listing out. These are all amazing, amazing perks. Rush towards what? maghfirah min rabbikum. These are the things that are promised. You're going to have Allah's forgiveness and you're going to enter paradise and have whatever you want. I want everyone to close your eyes and think about what you want in Jannah. If you're a parent of children, you're like, sleep. Okay? Just think about what you want. You know there's no such thing as no when you want something in Jannah? There is no restriction. You'll get what you want. You'll only want virtuous things and you'll get whatever it is that you desire. Allah Ta'ala says, لَكُمْ فِيهَا مَا تَشْتَهِي أَنفُسَكُمْ Allah Ta'ala says that you will get whatever you desire, whatever you hope for, Allah Ta'ala will give it to you. In fact, you won't even have to work for it. My favorite description of Jannah is that a person will see a fruit on a tree that they want. Okay, you'll see the Pakistani mango, you'll see it. And... Upon seeing it, you'll want it. And it's free, it's there, it's on your property. And all you have to do, let's imagine it's like right there, it's within grasp. All you have to do is reach up and grab it. And when you grab it, it's as though this amazing auntie with her small knife peeled it perfectly for you, sliced it up and left the pit in the bowl as well so that you could enjoy that after like the bone. And when you grab it, it'll be automatically peeled. But you know what's crazy? Allah does not even allow you to grab it. He doesn't give you a chance to grab it. You know why? Because the tree is commanded to place the fruit directly into your mouth. Because why? You don't have to do any work in Jannah. You already did your work here. Allah Ta'ala says, not far away. It's for everyone who preserved their faith and they were repentant to Allah. من Akbar Allah Ta'ala says you'll be told enter it. Can you imagine? You're there and you're looking at it and you're like I spent all my life hearing about this place called Jannah now here I stand right in front of it and the angel is like enter Enter. And you're like, do I need any? no, enter. <laughs> that this is the day that you have been promised. This is your day. This is your residence now. <laughs> that for for you and for everybody in there, whatever you want, and guess what? We actually have more than you can even imagine. May Allah Ta'ala give us Jannah. So that Jannah, Allah Ta'ala says, is waiting for you. But what kind of person do you have to be? Here are the descriptions. You want to be this person? Yes or no. You don't know yet, but you want to be this person, right? Number one. This is a person who gives, but they don't just give in prosperity,. They also give. They also give in difficult times. Oh, interesting. Hold on. Does anyone want to be a person who's able to give even when times are tough? Okay, hold on. You see where I'm going with this? Can you give in tough times if times are always good for you? No. You can only give in tough times if Allah puts tough times in your life. So you read this verse and you're like, I would love to be, I would love to be the person that knew in their heart that even when times were tough, when layoffs hit me, when I lost my job, when I didn't know how much money I was going to make, even then I want to be that person, Ya Allah, that wrote a check for the orphans and for the families affected to give relief to Palestine and Gaza, Ya Allah. I want to be that person. Yes or no? How do you expect to be that person if you're never tested? You have to be willing to be tested. You have to. wa Now the next one. And the one who is able to swallow their anger. l-afina nas, And they forgive people. All of these, Allah is describing the person who's going to Jannah, has all of these. And Allah Ta'ala loves those who are beautiful with their faith and character and try their best. All of these are the result of being tested. You give in times of ease, which is a test by the way. Because how many of us, we get, 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 and then we forget to give. So you give when you are in good times, that's a test. In bad times, that's a test too. You have to swallow your anger when you're angry, when you're being tested. And then you have to forgive people. How do you forgive people? When that person has become a fitna or a test in your life. But it will give you an eternity of relief and joy and happiness. Notice that all of these are difficult things, but when you think of the goal, the difficulty becomes worth it, right? So then, now how do we act on this, this ability to forgive? The Prophet Sallallahu another motivating point. He told Abdullah ibn Amr bin al-As, may Allah have mercy and be pleased with both of them, the son of Amr bin al-As. And why am I mentioning this hadith? I'll tell you why. He told him Irhamu Tarhamu waqfiru that he says, be merciful and you will receive mercy. That Allah Ta'ala says, or the Prophet says, have mercy, you will receive mercy, be forgiving, and Allah will forgive you. lakum. Okay? So Here we see one motivating point, which is forgiveness of people means that Allah will forgive you. How many sins do we have? Don't tell anybody. How many mistakes have we made? A lot. How many times have we committed indiscretions against other people? Many times. So it's interesting because the way in which the Prophet is telling us to be forgiven is by forgiving other people. If you forgive, Allah will forgive you. If you have mercy, Allah will have mercy on you. Now, why is this story so interesting that it's Amr ibn al son who's telling this story? Because Amr bin al-'As an, was one of the staunchest enemies of the Prophet His story is absolutely amazing. He was one of the generals and one of the leaders of Quraysh that consistently fought against the Prophet not just once or twice, not just for a couple months or a couple years. But for the entirety of his message, he did not actually become Muslim until almost the last years of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, until Mecca was opened, the last couple years of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But you know what's crazy? Even after the Prophet ﷺ opened Mecca and many people came into Islam, he didn't. You know what he did? He ran to Abyssinia. He escaped to Abyssinia. He thought, you know what? If I'm here and I'm one of his enemies, the Prophet's going to kill me. And if he kills me, like, I'm dead. <laughs> right? Good math there. So then he says, I got to leave. I got to run. So he goes to Abyssinia because he's like, I need, now, I'm the, now I'm the one taking refuge. How interesting, subhanAllah. Early in the Muslims' community, they had to take refuge in Abyssinia. Now they're opening Mecca. Mecca is open for the Muslims. And now Amr, who was the source of so much pain, is taking refuge in Abyssinia. Tests are cyclical, man, subhanAllah. They come and they go. And they come just as fast as they go, and they come back just as quickly as they left. SubhanAllah. So Amr is in Abyssinia because there's a just king there, the Najashi. And he is taking his refuge there. But at the same time, there are some Muslims who are there and who are visiting. And there's one of them who is in particular a messenger of the Prophet so you know what Amr does? Guess what he does? You'll never guess. He goes to the Najashi and he says, hey, we're kind of like, we're, we're done. You know the Quraysh, like as we know it, the pagans, like us, like we're done. But for my honor, I would love it if you could let me just kill that last Muslim messenger. Just give me one shot. Just, just for me. Just so that when I die, they can say that I went down fighting. You know what Najashi does? Punches him in the face. Literally. He strikes him. I'm going to shocked. He like doesn't know what to say. The Najashi says to him, he says, I need you to go and see the Prophet ﷺ. He says, you are asking me to give up someone, this messenger, the, the, the messenger in Abyssinia. You're asking me to give him up, to let you kill him. And he is a messenger of the man who receives revelation from God. You don't think I'm not going to get in trouble for that? You don't think that Jabril is going to go to the Prophet and say that this is the king who turned your messenger in? And so he says, when I heard his words, Amr is saying this. He says, I felt this change overcome me. And I told him and I said to him that, do you really believe in him? And the Najashi says, I do. And then he says, you need to go and visit him. So Amr leaves and he goes to Medina, but actually before he goes to Medina, the Najashi gave him a bowl of water, he taught him how to wash, like make wudu, he gave him new clothes because his clothes were full of blood. And when he went out, when he left, everyone thought that he and the Najashi had like struck this new deal and now Ahmad is going to be like royalty. But he said, no, I'm going to Medina to go and visit. On his way, he arrived at the outskirts of Medina, And who does he run into? None other than another former enemy of the Prophet turned companion, Khalid ibn al-Walid. They meet each other. These are two of the most diabolical enemies of the Prophet and they're both going to meet him. So they go in together, and Amr asks Khalid, where are you going? See like subhanallah like the doubt? Where are you going? Khalid says, I'm going to Muhammad. Sallallahu Because anybody of any significance has become Muslim. And then he says, Khalid says, if we stay non Muslim, he's gonna kill us. So you can see like his motivations for conversion are interesting. He told him, Amr says, I'm also going to Muhammad, but I want to be Muslim. They stayed at a tent outside of Medina for that night. The next morning they woke up and they traveled together. He said, I will never forget, as we drew closer to Medina, a person saw us, and these guys were recognizable. And he said, what an incredible morning, because he knew what was about to go down. He repeated this three times. And he says, Mecca has given up its power and sent them to us. You know, like the Muslims were trying so much to go into Mecca and to make Umrah and to be there. And then this guy, he's basically like talking trash a little bit, right? He says, Mecca sent its power to us. You know, the Medina farmer is standing there with his dates and he's like talking trash. <laughs> These two guys, subhanAllah. Amr goes in with Khalid. It was time for Asr prayer. He goes, we arrived at the masjid of the Prophet Wasallam and we walked in and we saw his smile. He says Khaled was the first one to walk in and take the Shahada with the Prophet Sallallahu He was followed by Uthman bin Talha, and I was the third. He said, when I sat down, I could not lift my face to look at him in the eye because I was so embarrassed of the last 20 years of how I treated him. I was very shy. So he said, I stuck my hand out to shake his hand and to take the pledge, the bay'ah and the shahada. And the Prophet Sallallahu began to reach for his hand and Amr pulls it away. The Prophet Sallallahu he smiles and he says, what is this Amr? What's going on? And Amr says, Ya Rasulullah, when you embrace Islam, are all of your sins forgiven? <laughs> the Prophet said, When you embrace Islam, all of your sins are forgiven like the day that you were born. And Amr begins to cry and he takes the hand of the Prophet and he says, "Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasulullah." And he accepts Islam in that moment. Why am I telling you this story? Because this man, who literally firsthand, and I mean that literally by the hand of the Prophet felt forgiveness. His son is narrating a Hadith from our Prophet saying what? Forgive after 20 years of being a fitna in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, our messenger shows us that it's possible to forgive people. And that when you forgive, you will have accomplished something that you cannot accomplish unless you forgive. This story, the inspiration from this story would not exist if the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, no, kill him. But his ability to forgive transcends generations and his own son narrates from the prophet a hadith in which he says be merciful allah will be merciful to you forgive allah will forgive you and his dad knew the meaning of those words more than any of us realize because he took that on himself we ask allah ta'ala to allow us to be forgiving we ask allah ta'ala to give us the the pleasure of forgiving and going past our own ego to forgive those that have hurt us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to never be those that hurt other people. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us Hilm and the ability to forbear any difficulty that might end up in our path. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make it easy for us to be able to display these beautiful traits of His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and we ask Allah Ta'ala to uplift the oppression that the Ummah is experiencing that the Ummah, of his beloved messenger, is experiencing Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make things easy for those that are being oppressed, for those that are being occupied, for those that are being displaced all over the world. Not not only, not exclusively, but everywhere including Palestine, including Sudan, including Afghanistan, including Syria, including the Congo. Ya Allah, you know where everybody is experiencing difficulty, O Allah, and we do not know. You know the hearts of each person as they call out to you and as they weep to you, Allah, and we do not know. So, oh Allah, we sit here tonight needing you, only relying upon you, ya Allah, to give them relief and to give them comfort and to give them safety and to give them strength and to give them paradise, ya arhamar rahimeen. Allahumma bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfirika wa natubu We haven't finished this portion. There's a lot from dua. He goes on for a while. Or forgiveness, I'm sorry. But I wanted to begin it with this, inshallah, so that when we come back next Monday, we can hit the ground running with how to become forgiving and how to be that person. Because as we all know, it's a lot easier said than done. And so, Ali aiz bin Abdul Salam and some other scholars, they give us some tips on how to really process the fitna to become forgiving. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept. I'll see you guys, inshallah, throughout the week at the programs and next Monday. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, isha prayer is going to be in approximately eight minutes in the musalla. So if you want to head on over there, inshallah, you can walk through here with your shoes off or you can walk around the outside of the building, inshallah. as alaikum.